This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good morning, Sterling Fox in on Easter Monday for the vacationing Mike Smith, who will be back in this chair tomorrow. Hope your Easter weekend was lovely. For many of us, of course, it's still going on, though, isn't it? And a lovely day for many of us here in B.C. with lots of sunshine. I must say, though, I had to scrape the windshield. A surprise, surprise, before I got to drive downtown this morning. So it's a little nippy yet, but lots of sunshine on the way. And uh, lots of gatherings over the weekend. I live in a very quiet little neighborhood. And, uh, yeah, lots of visitor cars up and down the sidewalks yesterday and uh, Tim our, our French our producer and I were talking about this just a few minutes ago about how, who who went to visit people on New Year's and or on, on Easter rather and uh, T- Tim took a pass on visiting his folks uh, one of ours uh, took a pass on visiting us so uh, some people did some people observed the restrictions and the rules and other people because of course there were concessions for outdoor gatherings and uh, barbecues those sorts of things so well we'll talk a little bit more about that as the show goes along. And of course, we start today uh, with that uh, a serious and obvious flagrant contravention of the rules over the weekend by a couple of Vancouver restaurants. And basically look at it from a little different angle. Simi was all over it this morning in terms of punitive measures that need to be taken or ought to be taken. And lots of NW listeners agreed that there has to be, there have to be consequences for this sort of obnoxious behavior. But let's take a look at it from another angle. Jesse Miller's with us this morning. Jesse is the founder of Mediated Reality. He's a social media expert and educator. Jesse, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us this morning. I hope you had a good Easter weekend. Very quiet. Very quiet. Yes. Good. Yeah, same with us, too. It was very, very quiet. Our dog's birthday was yesterday. That was the highlight of our weekend. So you get the idea. It was pretty quiet in our house, too. Jesse, the social media a factor in all of these. For example, we had this gathering at Kitsilano at that restaurant, uh, uh, and people, uh, you know, obviously they would be there having agreed on social media to meet there. This would be some kind of agreed-to event. The health inspectors show up. They're basically booed out of the place by obnoxious patrons and so on. Is this um, th- is this resistance uh, fueled by social media, abetted by social media? What role does social media play in all of this now? Definitely more abetted than fueled. I mean, all throughout the weekend, we saw numerous media incidents of anti-maskers on BC ferries who are causing problems enough where the boat had to be redirected. Uh, they were all heading to Vancouver anyway for this uh, quote-unquote freedom rally or anti-mask rally or whatever the big tent rally is to get people uh, out of their homes and, and marching down the street uh, screaming oppression. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is the end, the end social media product of these people booing in a restaurant were those same individuals from the event on Friday who found their way to this uh, bastion of, of now screaming freedom against uh, tyranny. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where social media shares do become part of the dialogue as well, right? We, we could have people gathering in a house and saying, hey, nobody touch your phones because we don't want to have any evidence of this. Right. And then on the flip side, we do have those who are more than comfortable to put everything on social media, like we saw in, in uh, at Big White with the, the youth at the pub. Yes. Um, the reality of it is, is that the more people share on social media, the more they're likely to get caught. Well, and, and 
so I suppose then it becomes uh, the willingness to share factor, Jesse, becomes a little astonishing because you would think in some cases, yes, we're doing this protest and yes, we may even be on television, but do we need to really advertise our circumstances, especially the organizational fact on social media? Because that is what they call in court evidence. We'd like to think that, especially in British Columbia, 10 years after the Vancouver hockey riot. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we were having the same dialogue on, on June 16th, uh, saying, well, why were these idiots committing crimes and recording themselves? Mm. Well, because that's part of the world we live in today, where everybody records everything if it's in a public place. What's interesting here is the arguments about these private places, you know, you can't trespass, not allowed in here. It seems like it works when somebody wants to go into a Home Depot and not wear a mask, that they can scream their rights are being violated. Right. Violated. But when you're in a private restaurant, then when the health inspector comes in, now it doesn't apply. Uh, I don't understand this, the subjectiveness of these making up rules on the fly. So that's where a lot of this name and shame when it comes to violating provincial health orders. If you're putting yourself out there, I think you're low-hanging fruit. But the reality of it is we've had people kvetching on social media for the better part of 18 months here. Uh, the loudest ones are getting the larger mainstream media attention, obviously. They certainly are. And is there a, is there a way on the social media platform itself, Jesse, a Apart from all of the other shaming and other pop exposure of the of the individuals and and the campaign in other media forms, back on that original social media platform, is there a role for people who are displeased with this to speak up and perhaps uh, form a little bit more local opposition? They potentially can. What's interesting, especially with those who are very much kind of aligned right now with these conspiracy beliefs, they believe that things on Facebook are being looked at every day. So it becomes fake book. You know, the fact the fact checkers aren't legitimate or they're not getting the real research. But the thing is, Facebook doesn't necessarily have millions of eyes that are looking at every private group that's collect that's created. Right. So you could have groups that say, well, Facebook right now is monitoring us. Let's go over to Gab. And this is what we saw with uh, the QAnon believers. You know, they were kicked off of Facebook. They were kicked off of Instagram, they found their way to Parler, and then we had the Capitol uh, riots, and then now they're on Gab. Mm-hmm. The more that you push these groups from group place to place, the deeper and darker the, the corners get, which can actually become more problematic, especially for law enforcement. Law enforcement appreciates when this is very overt, when it's very in the open, because then they can actively and proactively engage to kind of assess where things are going to occur. So in that, yes, social media platforms do have some responsibility, but at the end of the day, the internet is ubiquitous. We can see these groups find them find each other anywhere. Sure. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that when it's in the open, at least we can we can vet it. Well, you know, there's that old saying that the police love to use, give, give, them, give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves. And in some ways, there is that capability in social media, isn't it? Because there's, there's I, I suppose it's the performance aspect of it all, Jesse. Not only am I here doing this, but look what I'm wearing and, and all of this stuff. And, and of course, the more out there you are, the more uh, the more likes and approvals you're seeking, right? Yeah, very much so. And back to the Vancouver hockey riot. I mean, 10 years ago, we were only dealing with Facebook itself. Like That's Instagram right. and Snapchat weren't things. But when you had people prior to Game 7 you know, popping on Facebook saying, win or lose tonight, we're going to cause a riot. When they were trying to get on at King George uh, Skytrain Station, Translink Police, the RCMP, they were already basically blocking people saying, you're not going downtown tonight, right. no matter how hard you try. And they would scream foul saying, I'm allowed to get on transit. No, this is private property. We're not allowing you to kind of get downtown to cause this craziness. Now that you're on private property, we're going to search to see if you have any weapons. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that what we want to see here is the Charter of Rights to be fulfilled. We want to see pro- a provincial health orders being observed and, and, and followed through so that the collective good for all of us in the social contract is health. 
But when it comes down to individuals using social media and law enforcement, I mean, a lot of them are saying things like, well, you know, any police looking at my Instagram, you're not allowed to investigate me now. You put it on the Internet. You have to be prepared for the consequences, whether you think your account's private or not. Well, Jesse, it's the same thing as, uh, you know, closed circuit cameras. I mean, you've been to London, I'm sure. And I mean, there isn't a place in London, England, you can go that you're not on camera. Since 2010 and the Olympics here in Vancouver, we're not that far behind. There aren't many places in our city where you can go that you aren't on some kind of surveillance system and that's an automatic if you're outdoors and in public in vancouver you should just sort of automatically behave like someone's watching because they are well potentially and that goes into also what does it mean for all individuals these days we have their nest cams we've got our google home cams we hear in a police investigation they ask for people to come forward with any footage that that's might right. not be readily available. dash cams you bet yeah yeah, and so we are in a we are in a surveillance state that we've created. I mean, that's the thing when we hear individuals screaming through this process, nineteen eighty four and Big Brother's watching, like we've we've fueled that whole piece. Mm-hmm. And this and this is more uh, uh, a reality that we are in an information sharing society. Uh, it's not it's not the same. You can't scream foul when your own Facebook platform is being investigated because you use the platform, you create the platform for the use of kind of propagating messaging. But when the message itself violates law. Uh, those who create it can't scream foul. You, know, you can't. You can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. So in that process, you know, some people are concerned about shaming. You know, those who are being you know conspiracy believers and everything else that goes along with this debate. Um, those who are actively just kind of sharing misinformation. I mean, it is the low hanging fruit. It's a two inch putt to call those out. But when you see this great orchestration of, of violating orders and putting together marches and whatnot, mm-hmm. I'm really happy that our provincial and our federal police uh, are actively looking to really minimize the risk because we don't need people committing crimes against vaccination sites or individual groups getting together because they they want to become radicalized. I mean, we've already seen burning arson last week in North Vancouver associated to flat earthers. I mean, how, how far down the rabbit hole do people have to go before uh, innocent people get hurt? And we're back. Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on Easter Monday, joined by Jesse Miller, social media educator, founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, we did open the phone lines during the break. Let's, uh, let's take some calls here with Ken and Langley uh, all set to go. Ken, good morning. Thanks for waiting. Uh, thank you, Sterling. I'd just like to say, what is going on here? We have the Canucks that we're allowed to play and teams to uh, play. They have some sort of special privilege, and they even allowed themselves to play with this danger that officials let them play. Our restaurants now uh, uh, defying orders, not just the churches and other people. We don't even have our officials making an actual order for to help deter things a little for even just inter-community travel? What is going on? And I'm doing my part here with my family. I'm waiting for a vaccine. Hopefully I get the damn thing yeah. and I don't get sick. But I, where, where is these cowards, these reckless, these people that are recklessly endangering everybody? Powers in government. Yeah, I'll leave it there, Ken. You you express your question on behalf of an awful lot of British Columbians this morning, Jesse Miller. Um, what on earth is going on? And you know, Horgan got uh, he kind of got it last week when he uh, uh, I think probably blamed one group too much more than another group. But basically, he so he told young people don't blow it for the rest of us. And I think basically telling everyone don't blow it for the rest of us. And there are just there is there's this core of resistance, Jesse, that's not going to back down. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I can't speak to all of those points from the caller, but the one that does stand out to me is uh, Horgan. You know, he made his comments at the podium. He's not the most active premier across Canada in this dialogue. He does give reins to Dr. Henry and, and, and Minister Dix. But when he does come out, it's almost like Dad reminding you of something, in my opinion. And I, 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 I felt that when I heard from, you know, hey, hey, you kids, don't blow this for the rest of us. Yeah, and he got yeah, called he, Premier Dad for it, too, yeah. didn't he? And, and it was somewhat general in that sense. But what we do see across North America is that the majority of the upticks in cases do involve youth. And a lot of states, I mean, if you look at Colorado, Michigan, Vermont, most of their outbreaks right now do involve uh, some organized sports activities that we've severely limited here in British Columbia. So right. if we were to even give a little bit more of that breath, we, we saw soccer parents last week getting very upset that they couldn't watch the games. I think there are certain aspects of what our provincial health orders look like that do make a lot of evolving sense within what a COVID reality looks like. Unfortunately, I mean, when he has some data, it might not come across as, as clear and, and as concise as maybe Dr. Henry or Dr. Dix at the microphone. And even then, that's subjective based on how you're feeling about all of this. But in our social media spaces, one of the things we have to keep in mind here is that people are very, very, very loud. They are very communicative about how they feel. And yes. we start to see these groups getting radicalized. There are some legitimate concerns for safeties in our communities. And we might see some pushback very similar to other places where we kind of shake our head and go, that sounds crazy. I can't believe that's happening there. But at the end of the day, social media does play a role in how we as a society communicate our concerns. What we do need here is probably some better data from the government showing why these justifications have to be put into place for things like restaurant closures. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they got to work with the groups that are actively going to also communicate the concerns to their constituents, whether it be restaurant associations, bar associations, and then highlight where some groups may be actually flaunting the rules a little bit too flexibly and then enforcing those groups to shut down. A lot of nuanced, unnecessarily from where I'm sitting, at least, Jesse, a lot of unnecessarily nuanced messaging in the restrictions, limitations and other uh, uh, orders that are being imposed. And we're in this this circuit breaker right now with even more impositions. But I, I find, you know, I, I used this example yesterday on on, uh, on my show. Uh, yeah, on Easter Sunday, it was possible for for dozens and dozens of people on a film crew to go into a church and shoot a movie about a church service, but for members of that parish to try to go to a church service in that church was verboten. So again, you know, I get all the work safe and I get all of that stuff, but in terms of the consumer, that's that's confusing messaging. And does the government, back to social media for a sec, does the government have a role, Jesse, or more of a role to play itself on social media in, in sort of directly confronting some of this stuff? We're actively seeing very good advertisement messaging about the realities of COVID in the province on social media, and it's it's multifaceted. We're seeing it on Facebook, we're seeing it on Instagram, TikTok. But the thing is, is that I would like to actually see more of an organized push from government to really uh, advoc- advocate against misinformation. So if we did see the province I- initiate some form of communication strategy, and not only on their own pages, but actively targeted groups in British Columbia about misinformation, we would see uh, potentially less prone individuals falling for some of the things that are circulating. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that's the hard part, is that anytime we see a bit of a rollback, and let's say the AstraZeneca, you know, blood clots. Okay, blood clots exist, but blood clots exist in birth control too. If you put those ratios up and you highlight it and who who the the concerned community is, is it women? Is it women of a certain age? What are the issues? What are the concerns? Mm -hmm. If the government was doing that on social media, we'd probably see less 
rampant wildfires of people's random opinion who have just researched something on the internet compared to a person who's researched viruses and vaccines for 30 years. Interesting, you know, Jesse, with a federal election just around the corner and the majority government achieved by Horgan in the provincial election last year, by gosh, those government staff people are terrific on social media when it's vote for me time. They just sort of drop the ball between, don't you think? Well, it's potentially. I think there's also some campaign that goes in there as well. I'm a big believer that, you know, once you get to a pedestal as well, you're quite keen to get knocked down. I don't think anybody really knew who Dr. Henry was prior to the pandemic. They didn't know who Dr. Tam was prior to the pandemic. But the second that we have these strong and and very, very intelligent women guiding part of it, you know, that's where all these people draw their ire and all of a sudden they become public enemy number one. I mean, I saw a picture of Dr. Henry uh, flying from Vancouver to Victoria prior to Long Weekend where she's sipping a coffee and drawing her mask down that's she's able to do that in the space based on the rules that photo now circulates on social media is her flaunting the rules yeah exactly yeah Yeah. welcome back at sterling fox in for mike smith mike returns to this chair tomorrow he's enjoying an extra long easter weekend as are many british columbians in a beautiful day we have in this corner of the province for sure it's a pleasure to welcome this fellow to the airwaves of cknw which we do frequently he is an infectious disease expert he is our science guy he is the host of the super awesome science show jason tetro on the line from edmonton jason good morning well, good morning. It's good to have you with us, and boy, do I have a lot for you this morning. We, in our last <laughs> half hour, we just talked about social media uh, with uh, Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality, and uh, about, mm-hmm. uh, among many other things, misinformation, the, the uh, profusion of uh, misinformation on social media. And, of course, that leads to confusion amongst the general population. Mixed and murky messaging from government isn't helping either. So can we unpack some stuff this morning, Jason, please? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I got a few things. Uh, um, We're going to talk about mass testing in the UK in a little bit. I want to talk about these graphene masks that have been recalled by (laughs) Health Canada. But first and foremost, uh, we are in the pickle we are this Monday morning because we still don't have enough enough vaccine uh, for our population. We know there are a couple million more coming this week. uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, again, now we have this confusion. And I, I think it's confusion is a safe word, Jason, over the whole matter of AstraZeneca and the blood clots issue that saw mm-hmm. some European countries actually cease use of the vaccine temporarily and uh, and one country at least uh, discontinuate, discontinuing it permanently. What's the status with AstraZeneca in, in Canada? As we understand, Health Canada says the risks aren't significant enough to discontinue using the vaccine. Yeah, so what has happened is that we've seen um, essentially a population effect. And so when you do your trials, phase one, phase two, phase three, you're always looking for adverse events. Sure. And uh, some will pop up and some may not simply because you didn't have a large enough population. And so what ends up happening is sometimes rare conditions or rare issues will pop up when it goes to uh, the general public, we sometimes call it the phase four or post-market analysis. And when you see that, depending on what the potential link may be back to the vaccine, you want to then put a pause on the use of the vaccine in order to find out whether or not there's any risk. Sure. Now, what's neat about this particular 
um, problem with respect to AstraZeneca is that there may actually be a mechanism behind what we're seeing. We just need to know whether or not the vaccine is the reason for that mechanism to have occurred. And that's really where we are right now. There's a group in Germany. They're actually been working on it. They've been working on this type of thing for many, many, many years. Um, so they will be able to give us sort of the final word. And then we can move on with giving this vaccination. In the meantime, just realize, A, it no, hasn't been seen here in Canada. And B, it seems to be so rare that you need to be vaccinating millions and millions of people before you even see one case. Right. And uh, we had, uh, we had, of course, with AstraZeneca in the United States. Again, when you've got a population base in the United States, as a good example, mm -hmm. 350 million people, you start yeah. issuing, and they've issued well over 100 million vaccines so far in the United States. Mm -hmm. Even with that population base, you're, you're bound to have some extraordinary side effects effect reaction simply because of mathematics, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, that that is something you're always going to be concerned about, which is one of the reasons why when you go to get vaccinated now, you have a little list of things that you need to click off, including, you know, I don't have any allergies to peg, sure. things like that. So, and, and remember, this happens with the flu vaccine as well. When you check off, it's always asking you, do you have a, you know, an allergy to eggs, yep. that type of thing. So this is what we're learning through population effects in terms of rarities, but those rarities end up being a checkbox on a form for the most part. So are you uh, comfortable with the fact that AstraZeneca going forward in Canada is just fine? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I'm not too concerned about that. And for a lot of people who have been asking, you know, they, they say under the age of 55, even though we've probably seen some people who were a little bit older having these similar types of conditions. Here's the thing. In the first few phases of the trial, they only tested 18 to 55-year-olds. And so when it comes right down to it, that's where the majority of our information comes from. Sure. That's, the, that's where a lot of the cases have been coming from. So that's why the recommendations initially were for anyone under the age of 55. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, there's an interesting column in the Sun newspaper group today written by a fine guy from Ottawa named Mark Bonacoski. The title of the column is, We're All Guinea Pigs Now, Thanks to Justin <laughs> Trudeau. And he goes on and on about this is the, the decision by the the vote for me's Justin, to take the recommendations of Moderna and Pfizer of 21 and 28 days, respectively. I may have that backwards, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I know. And extend that from 28 or 21 days to four months. Uh, mm -hmm. Pfizer recently, as I recall, last week uh, released a statement reiterating its original recommendation for the 21-day separation. A lot of Canadians uh, really nervous about this stuff, Jason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here's the situation. When we were doing all of the uh, clinical trials and putting the vaccines uh, essentially in order, we were looking at what was called sterilizing immunity. In other words, you get your two shots and then you never have to worry about the virus ever again. Yeah. All right. Here's the problem. How is British Columbia doing right now with respect to variants? Not so good, mm -hmm. is it? And so we're in a race between vaccines and variants. And as a result of the fact that we simply cannot secure enough shipments, thank you, America First Policy, that means that we have to start looking at getting everybody what's called a baseline immunity. And what that essentially means is that you may end up getting uh, the virus, you may end up having some mild symptoms, but you're not going to end up in severe conditions, you're not going to end up in hospitals. And remember, P1 is now starting to affect 30 to 50 year olds and putting them in hospitals. Yes. So this idea of baseline immunity is really the one we should be following. And as we're getting a million doses every single week from just one of the providers, we're going to be able to catch up. And we may actually have everybody fully vaccinated by the end of the summer. Right. But what I'm hoping is that we can get everybody, as, as many people as possible, with that first vaccination shot. 
So we can take a lot of the pressure off of our healthcare facilities and also off of places like schools and, well, NHL rinks. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I know because we're still hoping sometime this fall we'll be able to go to a hockey game. Uh, I wanted to ask you about kids. You mentioned kids earlier. And again, as mm-hmm. this, as the testing and the research and all the rest of this is so much a work in progress too, Jason. But it, is it likely that by September there will be enough evidence around to uh, support vaccinating those kids under 18 prior to going to school this fall? Oh, yeah, we should have it by May. Um, we're in a situation now where I think Pfizer is finally just putting the, um, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. I think I got that right. Um, and, and when that, once that's done, they'll be presenting that to the FDA. Once that happens, they'll roll over into Canada and to other places. So we'll probably be able to see children from 12 and up, uh, essentially being able to be vaccinated, which is great because as you can see from the numbers right now, uh, the 10 to 19s are starting to increase in their, um, sort of prevalence of of the virus in that community. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we all know, schools reflect community spread. And normally when community spread isn't so bad as it has been in British Columbia, you don't see it in the schools. That's basically where we've been. However, thanks to the P1, if we start getting up above, you know, uh, like a 10 to 20% positivity rate in the community, well, then schools wind up being incubators. And that's where it becomes a major problem. And that's what we're trying to avoid. And hopefully the vaccines will give us that opportunity to avoid that come the beginning of school next year and everybody can get back to kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Indeed, we're starting to see the staff in at least one school district here in, in BC uh, already beginning getting vaccinated before the end of this school semester, let alone the beginning of next. So you're optimistic that by the fall, we'll have a, a much firmer vaccine slash schools policy going forward. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, remember, I still believe that it's going to be over by August to September, the, the pandemic itself, uh, and that we should have everybody with at least one dose uh, by June 30th above the age of 18. And then over the summer, kind of like summer school, we'll be able to get the kids to come in and uh, get a shot. Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith. Lines are wide open to our infectious disease expert and science guy, Jason Tetro, 604-280-9898. Jason, I wanted to ask you about the mask. A story in the newspaper over the weekend, Health Canada has issued a recall on disposable Mm -hmm. masks containing a material made of tiny particles it says could pose a danger if inhaled. It's about graphene. Uh, I'm looking Mm -hmm. at a picture of them online, and it looks a whole lot like the mask I'm holding in my right hand. So do I have a a mask with graphene, and how do I know whether I do or not? No. um, It will actually say with graphene in it. In order for it to be... Yeah, it would have to actually state that there's graphene in it. And graphene is something that I usually wear respiratory protection against. And so I would really recommend not having anything that's graphene up against your face. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I have some graphene right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's so it, it, it the call is legit. Are these Canadian made or are they imported from abroad? What's the source of this particular mask? And and has it just been discovered, or have we been wearing them for months without knowing it? What's the deal? No, this is something that. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm losing my voice here. I can see that. This is something that has been. Uh, 
happening for a, a little bit of a time where people have been trying to put in new things. So copper, zinc. Oh, right. And okay. of course, graphene mm-hmm. happens to be antimicrobial. So people have been trying to put graphene in there. Um, I'm not sure where the sourcing of it is, but uh, I would definitely recommend that if you see graphene, you just leave it on the shelf because it's going to get recalled anyways. Okay. I'll let you have a cough and a glass of water and remind our <laughs> listeners when you're going Sorry to the this. store. And it's okay. When, you, when, you, when you're in the store and you pick up one of those packages of, of the surgical masks, the blue ones, we all have them my gosh they're hanging from the uh, the rear window rear view mirrors of cars they're in every the cup holders they're everywhere next time you buy some just make sure that you check and see that it does not contain graphene g-r-a-p-h-e-n-e uh to the phones al in surrey good morning yes uh why don't you have that expert bring up monoclonal antibody treatment I have mm-hmm. a list of four of these uh, items that are recommended now by the head U.S. virologists now that Trump's gone. And uh, believe it or not, Trump himself ha- was given one of these intravenously. The names are flumoxamine, Regencov, Bamlivab. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah, Trump got one of those when he, was, when he had COVID, and he went into the hospital and received a, a barrage mm-hmm. of treatments, Jason, the likes of which most uh, mere mortals wouldn't get. But what about these substances our caller is referring to? Yes, yeah, so monoclonal antibodies are designed uh, specifically to recognize COVID-19 coronavirus. Okay. And so what happens is if you happen to be having a severe infection in your lungs um, or even in your bloodstream, they'll give you these monoclonal antibodies, which will then um, essentially block the virus from being able to infect any more cells. So it's essentially a roadblock that's preventing the virus from doing anything worse. Now, it's not necessarily going to cure you, but what it's going to do is it's going to give your immune system an opportunity to fight the, uh, the, the infection. Right. And also, if you have any other non-pharmaceutical interventions, like you know keeping people prone on their stomachs, that type of thing, it's going to help those as well by making sure that the virus isn't actually making things worse. Oh, okay. And as I understand it, as I recall, because when Mr. Trump got his, uh, it was defined as being a very, very expensive uh, uh, option that oh, was yeah. provided. Yeah, monoclonal antibodies are not cheap. And uh, anybody who works in a lab already knows that. But uh, when it comes to actually doing it for treatment, they can run very, very expensive. Now, I get that we do have free health care here in Canada, so that does help. But the thing is, is it would only be used sort of as a last resort right. for the most part, uh, and that there are other ways. Now, thankfully, um, you know, the, the level of severity and, and people needing, you know, ICUs and stuff like that is quite low. So monoclonal antibodies could potentially be something that could help along. Okay. Back to the phones, and we're in Langley this time with Gordy on the line. Thanks for waiting, Gordy. Good morning. Go ahead, uh, please. Charlie? Yes, sir. I have a question for your guest. I am allergic to penicillin. Is it okay mm-hmm. for me to take uh, one of these vaccinations like Pfizer or Moderna? Good question. Yeah, J- absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, when you have an allergic reaction to an antibiotic, uh, I actually do as well. Uh, for me, it's C-Chlor. And uh, for you, it's penicillin. Those are based on the chemicals that are produced uh, by the fungi. That's initially how it was done and then created in the lab. Uh, They have absolutely no link or relationship to the chemicals that are actually being used uh, in the Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson vaccines. So you can still get a vaccine if, of course, you have these uh, particular type of antibiotic allergies. Okay, so it's safe. All right. I wanted to ask you about uh, Boris Johnson over in the UK says going forward, uh, effective uh, by 
the end of this month, every person mm-hmm. will be able to get up to two tests a week just to uh, keep things going forward. They're dealing with variants as much as we are, probably more. Uh, and they're talking about the PCR test uh, versus the lateral flow test. Uh, yeah. And so wh- what are those tests? Jason, we've got about a minute and a half here. What are those tests? And Because and, uh, I know Dr. Henry here in BC isn't impressed with the testing process. So why would the Brits go forward with it? Well, first off, uh, my act- my show, Super Awesome Science Show, we're actually covering this topic, diagnostics, so please listen in. Uh, but in terms of a lateral flow, it's a pregnancy test. So if you know what a pregnancy test is like, then you know what a lateral flow test is like. That is a rapid diagnostic test to be able to give you an idea as to whether or not you may or may not have this particular virus. Okay. However, you need to be doing it on a regular basis in order to have any good confidence. A PCR test is where they actually take a sample and they send it to a lab. That's the swab in your mouth thing, right? Swab in your mouth right. or in your nose or in the back of your head where okay. it makes you feel like you just had wasabi. Mm-hmm. Um, when they do that, then what happens is it's a much more um, confirmatory test, like you can have more faith in it. And so that is something that you should be doing maybe infrequently. And then you use the rapid test to be able to make sure on a regular basis. And the reason that you do this type of testing regimen is because then you have a really good understanding of where the virus is in the community. Sure. And just so you know, this is what they've been doing in all of the sports bubbles, in the entertainment bubbles, and all sorts of things like that. And yes, we are going to have leaks every now and then, and the Canucks have unfortunately suffered that. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it gives us an ability to be able to have control of where the virus happens to be. And if it does seem to start leaking out or getting into a community, we can shut that little section down and let the rest of the people get on with their lives. And that's what the UK is trying to do And right that's now. what they're doing. Free lateral flow tests will be available free starting this week by mail from pharmacies yep. and in workplaces. So again, information is power, isn't it, Jason? And we always appreciate the information you're able to share with us on this program. Thanks so much for a little bit of your time on Easter Monday morning. It was most enlightening, sir. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I'm glad your throat made it through it, too. Oh, I know. (laughs) Thanks, Jason. We'll talk again soon. Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on this Easter Monday, and a lovely day it is, too. Now, as Gord mentioned, 8 degrees, heading to 13 this afternoon, and that's here at English Bay. It's going to be even warmer in the valley. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, watched the Maple Leafs play the Calgary Flames last night and found myself, Carol and I, watching the game mm, sort of interestedly-ish, and found ourselves talking about the Canucks during the whole game, worried about our guys. And this morning, of course, lots of chatter, and Gord just had more. No games to talk about, but that's kind of the point. The Vancouver Canucks have been sidelined as the team deals with COVID-19, ravaging their roster, and now we're learning it is likely the P1 variant that is doing the ravaging. Our show contributor, John Jang, has the latest, and why this is different from any other previous outbreak. Good morning, Sterling. Now, typically, I'd love to talk about the Canucks with you, pouring over their weekend performance, highlighting which players looked good and which players might be struggling. But right now, we're all just hoping for the best as the team continues to deal with COVID-19 that has shut down all practices and games until further notice. The number of players and which amount of coaches that are actually positive with COVID-19 seems to be in flux. So joining us for more is Emily Kaplan. She is ESPN's national NHL reporter. Emily, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. My pleasure, John. 
Now, um, here we are uh, about a week into this whole COVID-19 situation with the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, what is the latest that you have heard with this team and uh, the number of uh, COVID-19 cases? Uh, because clearly it seems to be a little different based on all the reports we've seen over the past couple of days. Yeah, it's really hard to pin down a number. But um, from what I've been told, it's more than half the team, at least three coaches and also some family members that have been affected as well. Um, and what's really scary about this is that a lot of the players who were infected um, are symptomatic. I was hearing over the weekend um, they were, you know, feeling fatigue, uh, dehydration. There was at least one case of a player who needed an IV. The good news is I was starting to hear some reports by Sunday afternoon of some players' conditions improving. Um, but altogether, this is just really scary, especially for so many people who think we're so close to the finish line of this pandemic, but we're just really not there yet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, here in BC, uh, experts have been saying this is the third wave and the numbers have not been kind. We know that this province is becoming a hotspot for the P1 Brazilian variant. And speaking of, if I'm not mistaken, that is the variant of the virus that is ripping through this team right now. Yeah, that's what it's believed to be. Um, you know, I've heard that there's at least a couple players that um, have that. And, you know, based off the symptoms we're hearing, um, the symptoms for this variant seem a lot harsher, you know, than just COVID-19 or, or maybe the virus that was existing a month or two months ago. So that, again, has given a lot of people pause, um, you know, and I think the NHL is now saying the Canucks have to be a cautionary tale. And it's one of the reasons why the NHL and NHLPA sent out a memo to teams over the weekend, just reminding them, this isn't over yet. You've got to stay vigilant. You've got to keep wearing your mask, even if you are vaccinated, because there are a lot of folks here in the U.S., some NHL players and coaches who now have gotten their shots. Right. And, and I guess there's been a lot of conversation here about the NHL protocols that are in place because, uh, you know, while they were waiting for Adam Gaudet's test results or maybe when they had seen that he was positive already, the team was still allowed to participate last week on Wednesday. And it, it seems like that's just flirting with disaster. And it seems like worst case scenario right now is that the team uh, just can no longer function because of the number of players that have tested positive. Yeah, you know, everything we hear about this variant is that it's highly, highly contagious. So looking back in hindsight, it does seem quite ridiculous that Adam Gaudet was pulled from practice on Tuesday, confirmed positive Tuesday night, um, and then they played a game on Wednesday. Now, I don't want to pin this all on Adam Gaudet. We don't know, you know, where this virus originated from, how it was spread, but it sounds like even just being on the ice together um, was a possible way that it could spread. So these are things that the NHL needs to take into account going forward. It's so tricky. There's no blueprint for this. You know, I do think that the NHL is trying really hard and listening to a lot of smart experts, um, but the virus is bigger than all of us, and the virus has its own plan sometimes. We've seen other teams where a high number of players have been infected. I, I think back to the Dallas Stars right when the season began. like They just they couldn't play for the first couple of games just because uh, they had all these positive cases. But is the differing factor here, Emily, simply the, the whole point that it is a Brazilian variant and because it's that much more infectious? Or is it actually having to do with the symptoms that the players are going through? What's the differing factor between this and any other outbreak between the, uh, the Canucks and the, and the rest of the NHL? It's the symptoms for sure. Um, you know, we, we've heard of some players who have had the virus who have talked about, you know, in isolated cases, their experience of, you know, being fatigued, um, having the chills in bed, maybe being immobile for a couple of days. But 
the words that I was hearing from the Vancouver Canucks, even just texting with some players um, on the team, uh, player agents who represent players on the team, um, it sounded really bad. Like guys couldn't even get out of bed again. An IV for dehydration. If you're a professional athlete, that's um, that's pretty serious stuff. So I think the concern now is how do they recover? Because everything we know also about this virus is it's not a linear recovery. You know, there can be some long-lasting effects to your respiratory system um, as well as your muscle groups. Like, when can this team get on the ice safely? And and finally here, Emily, and I do appreciate you giving us some time here today. There's, you know, there's been a lot of uh, discourse over the weekend. Some people essentially downplaying the seriousness of this issue. Others saying that it's a lot more serious about this issue. Based on what you've heard and, and your conversations with this story, uh, where do you feel the truth really lies? Is that the team and the players are being overly cautious or are they approaching this kind of the right way? Because uh, as you sort of mentioned earlier, the virus is larger than all of us. So it's reminding us that we really need to take this a lot more seriously. We're not really at the end of the tunnel just yet. Yeah, it's so hard. You know, you don't want to blow things out of proportion um, and, you know, suggest fear-mongering. You also don't want to undermine anything. All I know is that these are professional athletes supposed to be in the prime of their lives and their careers and their physical shape. Um, when they were talking about the conditions that they were feeling, we should probably listen. That's very well said. She's Emily Kaplan, ESPN's national NHL reporter. Emily, thank you for giving us some time here. Hopefully the Vancouver Canucks can uh, get healthy again. Uh, whether or not they finish the season, I think it's kind of up in the air right now. But I would say let's err on the side of caution first. So uh, thank you so much for giving us some insight into this. My pleasure, John. Sterling Fox with you on this Easter Monday. Gord had just had some business stories at the end of the Vancouver newscast. I have one more business story, an announcement out of Seoul, South Korea today that LG officially leaving the mobile phone business. The company says it will look to unload its current inventory of handsets. It will also offer service support and software updates for the existing devices, which will last for a certain period of time, depending on where you live. The decision to drop out of the industry was approved today by the board of directors of LG. Six years of losses uh, totaling four and a half billion dollars off LG's books. The big reason behind the big bailout today. Here to talk about it is technology and digital lifestyle expert Andy Brar from Handy Andy Media. Andy, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great to talk to you. It's been a long time. It has been a while, my friend. It's good to talk to you. Are you a cell phone guy? Of course you are. What brand do you got? What uh, What are you carrying today, Andy? Well, <laughs> you'll be kind of surprised, uh, Sterling. I, I try to take the brands that a lot of people won't touch. So the current phone that I'm using is actually from Huawei. Oh, really? Yeah, they're one of the biggest uh, cell phone manufacturers in Asia. Of course, there's issues about Huawei coming into Canada. They're not even allowed to use Google as an operating system. Mm -hmm. And despite all of this, Sterling, I still use Huawei because of my curiosity in the technology. I try to take the brand away and just look at the tech inside the phone. Right. And Huawei is just one of those, you know, there, there's two types of tech companies, Sterling. You have the innovators 
and the imitators. Right. And Huawei is definitely on the innovative side as well as LG. So it was really sad to see them uh, exit the smartphone industry. Were you surprised though? And uh, the part that surprised me, Andy, was the staggering loss that being the phone division. Now LG makes refrigerators and TVs. They're a huge manufacturing conglomerate in South Korea, but I had no idea they'd lost four and a half billion bucks over the last six years in their phone division. Absolutely. And you know, every year, Sterling, I go to Las Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, mm-hmm. and LG has one of the biggest booths. It's the one that I actually spend the most time at because of so much innovative technology that they're showing. You know, this is a company back in 2013 introduced a smartphone that had curves on it. You know, mm-hmm. this was like unthinkable at the time. Sure. But what happened, and I'm not surprised that LG is leaving. There's been rumors that they've been trying to find a buyer and they just couldn't find any big company to buy their smartphone division. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you know, Sterling, if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. And that's why the board of governors decided to, uh, exit this July is when they will officially exit the smartphone business. And of course, they'll, they'll stick around. The brand will be around and they will support the brand uh, for a certain period of time. They're looking, though, to sell the existing inventory and no buyers yet. I imagine it's a fairly pricey uh, purchase. But nonetheless, what does this do for the, the, the smartphone industry uh, with one major player now off the field? Is it a consolidation for all of the others or does it give room for new people to jump into the game, Andy? Well, one of the reasons, Sterling, it's hard for us in North America to appreciate this, but one of the reasons why LG has struggled to compete is you have all these other Chinese brands that are introducing phones at a price point that just really makes it hard to compete. So you have so much competition, especially in Asia. Of course, their biggest rival is Samsung, which is also in South Korea. Mm -hmm. So they... What was really interesting is they just could not get brand loyalty with their user base because a lot of people have an LG phone. They might have an LG fridge or a washer and dryer, but that necessarily did not translate to them wanting to get an LG phone. And I think that's the biggest issue because you look at a brand like, say, Dyson. You know, I have yet to meet somebody that does not like a Dyson product, but it's very transferable when Dyson introduced a new product people will buy it because of the brand. Sure. And LG has struggled with that despite all the technology that they've introduced to smartphones. They weren't get able to get users excited about the brand itself. Well, that's, that's an interesting observation. You mentioned Samsung. I have a Samsung phone right here on the desk beside me and been using Samsung phones for years. I did have an LG a long time ago. And it, to me, it's not, it, 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 I got this phone on Cyber Monday on Amazon for super cheap. <laughs> that's that's why I have my current phone, Andy. But, it, it, but in terms of brand, we have Samsung TVs in our house, Samsung other products in our house, and we both carry Samsung phones. That brand has impacted the marketplace in North America. America, to a greater degree, much greater degree than LG ever did. Absolutely. And uh, LG leading is Samsung's win because I think what's going to happen is a lot of LG users of the smartphone, like this is number three smartphone brand just uh, behind Samsung in North America, right. only 2% market share globally. But a lot of those LG uh, users are going to probably move to Samsung. So it just shows that it's unfortunate. I'd love to see more competition in the smartphone industry, in right. any industry for that matter. But unfortunately, you know, if you have an Android phone, 
chances are it's a Samsung or a Google phone. And there just really isn't that much variety in the smartphone industry outside of Apple when you're looking at Android phones. What about these new Chinese brands that you're talking about? Huawei, of course, is is a whole other thing. Uh, and, and I don't trust it myself, but I know you, how, how curious you are. But what about these other competitors, these really low-priced uh, com- competitors that really are going to be rough on established brands simply from a price point, as you said earlier? Yes, but I don't think, Stanley, we're going to see those brands be, um, be popular in North America uh-huh. because a lot, a lot of our smartphones are tied to our cell phone carrier plans. Mm-hmm. So because these phones are getting ridiculous in prices, you want a high-end phone, you know, you can, with taxes all in and the warranty, you're looking at like two grand. Yep. And, and a lot of people can't afford that right out. But we're so dependent on our phones that that's why the carriers will make these two-year deals so you can get a subsidy on your phone so that it makes it affordable. But the general user holds a phone for about two years. So we always have to upgrade. What's unfortunate, especially with LG leaving, is just another brand. You know, they, they joined the ranks of Nokia, BlackBerry, yes. HTC, that have all left the smartphone industry. One company, however, Sterling, that's still in the game is Sony. Next week, they're actually launching their new Xperia phone. So that's one brand I'll be looking closely because they do not have a very big market share in the smartphone industry. So they'll be coming out uh, with all guns blazing and really hit the ground running. Absolutely. They, they basically ha- um, could try to take that market share away from LG, but I guarantee the people at Samsung are, are toasting right now that their biggest rival in South Korea is exiting the smartphone uh, business. No doubt about that. Andy, we appreciate the analysis this morning. Great to have you on the program. Good to make a, a connection with you after a long time. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to another chat soon. Absolutely. Great talking to you, Stu.